Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, is God still on the throne? In Genesis 3, God promised to make all things right again. Yet, so often in this life, everything seems wrong, and things seem to possibly be getting worse and not better at various chapters of our lives. In Genesis 15 and 17, God promised to abundantly bless his people, and yet the psalmist says, all our years pass away under your wrath. And then to King David, God promised to always have his king reigning on the throne and bestowing peace, justice, and righteousness to his subjects. Yet the circumstances of our lives seem like they are spinning out of control often, rather than guided by a good and wise king. There is a gap between promise and reality, or so it may seem to us. Like the child who has been promised presents on Christmas morning, and yet with each passing day of December, looks under the tree and where are they? Some families wait to bring those out later on. Some of them have them kind of scattered under the tree for the whole month. You can imagine how coming and seeing nothing under the tree might be disorienting to the child who has been given a promise. The the promises that we have been given are indeed marvelous, are wondrous. And yet what we experience seems to conflict with many of those promises. How do we reconcile these things? Well, we reconcile them through understanding the nature of Christ's reign as the son of David. And by measuring that gap, that gap between promise and reality, measuring that gap with the measuring stick of Calvary. Let us think about these things with two great truths and two great problems that we find in this psalm. Two great truths and two great problems. The context of this psalm is the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David. You find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord says to David, you will have a forever throne and a forever reign. When your days are fulfilled, the Lord says to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." So a different kind of of promise and guarantee than anything that Saul ever experienced. God says to David, I will give your offspring after you a forever throne, a forever rule, and a forever reign. The implication of that for God's people is that blessing would flow from this good and righteous and wise and reigning and ruling king. It's a lofty promise that God gives to King David. And so David is in view from the start in the psalm. 
In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 89, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You see, he's just restating in different words the kind of promises that have been made to King David. And so Psalm 89 seeks to understand reality in light of the promises made to the king. And what was reality uh, for the psalmist here? Read about Ethan, the Ezraite. What was the reality of God's people uh, at this point in the history of Israel? Well, this is the end of book three in the Psalms. And book three in the Psalms is really a, a turning point of God's people. It's where things seem to be disintegrating. The kingship, it reflects in many ways sort of the deterioration of the kingship. It begins in Psalm 72 and ends at Psalm 89. Psalms 72 and 73 are both, they are corporate and individual laments, and then Psalm 88 and 89 are corporate and individual laments. And so you have what's called there an inclusio, and the, the lamentation of God's people is often seen at the threatening of the kingship. It seems like this king is not going to endure forever. It seems like the throne is not going to be established forever. God's promises are in doubt. So that's the kind of thing that, so, that book three of the Psalms tends uh, to reflect upon. It gets to the lament of Psalm 89. We're working towards that end. But what makes tension about, this, uh, about these realities, God's promise and then the present circumstances, are two great things that we find in the psalm. First, the power of God and the promise of God. God is powerful, the psalm puts before us. There is no God like this God. It says in Psalm 89, verse 5, for instance, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? There are many spiritual beings in the world, things that we do not see, things that we do not consider, but none of them are like the Lord who lives and who reigns. Psalm 89 verse 8 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? The implication, of course, is no one. And so if this God is so powerful, blessed would be the people who have this God as their own. You know that kind of language that you see all throughout the Psalms. If God is who he says he is, blessed are the people of the God of Jacob. And so verse 15 in our psalm says this, Blessed are the people who know the feastal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. Brings us then to the promise of God. This God is powerful. This God has made promises. God has made a promise to David. And his love and guarantee are steadfast. Verses 28 and 29. So the second section of the psalm thinks about the promises of God in light of his power. Verse 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. You see it's, it's divine speech there in the second section. God speaking uh, to David, to David's people about the guarantee of his promise. Even human sin will not make his covenant 
uh, disintegrate and fall apart. Verse 30, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Human sin does not make this covenant fall apart. So then that moves us to the section that we read, which is a lament. God is powerful. God has made promises. And now, try to, trying to square that in light of the reality of the psalmist. This is where the dissonance arises. Because you have these two great truths, the power and the promise, and then you have what we might say are two profound problems. Two profound problems. And the first one is this, that God has wrath against sin. God must punish sin. We see that in verse 38, the beginning of the lament. Now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. This focuses on the king, the anointed one. But the implication, of course, is that God's people suffer too. If, if, the, if the king is brought under wrath, the people will be brought under wrath as well. So that's the first profound problem, that God must punish sin. Here's the second profound problem, the problem of death. The problem of death. And when you combine these two things together, what an enormous problem it is. That God must punish sin, and, the, the, and death means that we slowly pass away on this earth. So verses 46 and 47, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. You see the problem that this creates. The longer I'm under your wrath, the fewer days I have. So my time is running short and my time is being spent under the wrath of God. Profound problems for the psalmist. You might sum it up this way. God's just punishment, and that's what we have to remember, it is just punishment. God's just punishment for sin seems to, perhaps, cancel out the blessing of his promises. And the fact that we die quickly brings the absence of blessing into even sharper discord with the promise. Imagine those who lived their whole life in exile. They were taught about these wonderful promises of God, this amazing exodus that God had, had uh, brought about from Egypt and giving his people the blessing of the promised land and the blessings of a king, a good and righteous king, and all of these wonderful blessings that they experienced. But for the one who hears that in exile, it's but a distant memory. And their whole life they're saying, well, Am I ever going to be able to experience? Am I personally going to be able to experience any of those things myself? Or is it just something that lies distant in the future? This is what the lamentation is reflecting upon in many ways. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. God's anointed and God's people have been covered in shame and live in light in the shadow of these two profound problems. 
Israel can't say much to this. God's judgment, as we have said, is just. God had told them from the beginning that if they broke his law, he would take away what he gave to them. That if they rebelled against him, he would take away that land and he would bring them to a faraway place. God had told them all of these things again and again and again. And this brings for us, for our consideration, one of the fundamental problems of this life that we have already said, that there is a gap between promise and reality, between what God has guaranteed to his people and what we tend to experience in the circumstances of life. The experience of wrath might indeed and is indeed just. We cannot deny that. Israel could not deny that, and we cannot deny that. And as Psalm 90 says, all our days pass away under your wrath. Why do we live under the curse of sin? Why do we live under the curse of death? It is just. It is a just judgment. And yet, it brings all of these things into tension because we have been promised these amazing, incredible things from the Lord. So this tension, this dissonance, think about for whom all it, is, it has been true. It was true for Adam and Eve who had to cling to the promise of God. Remember that first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis 3. I will give a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. They had to cling to this promise even as they leave Eden into the much colder and much darker reality of their new life. A gap. It was true for Abraham who had so many of these marvelous promises of God and yet lived in tents in the land in which God had promised to him. He did not possess it. It becomes true for the psalmist here who does not provide us with a direct answer. He laments and then seemingly out of nowhere at the end of the psalm, it says, blessed be the Lord forever. And so he's going through this lament. He does not give us a direct, what we might say, a well-reasoned answer to all of this tension, but he ends doing what? Clinging to God. He does not let go of the Lord. And there's where we begin to see our answer this morning. Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. He acknowledges the dissonance, the tension, that gap between promise and reality, but he does not let go of God. One author puts it, one author puts it this way. Man is not able to resolve by his own thinking the contradiction between the promise and the actual state of affairs. He can only state that contradiction with a bleeding heart. He can only lift his hands in prayer to God and bring his affliction before him and lay before him the problems which his own thinking and reasoning are unable to master. How many of us, probably all of us at some point, have been brought to such a place where all that we can do is state the matter with a bleeding heart and bring the realities of life before God and lay them before him and not resolve in our own thinking what exactly is going on, but what do we do? We cling to him. The author goes on. The strength of such a faith shows itself in the very fact that it does not let go of God at the moment of crisis. 
but so much the more vigorously recalls both to itself and to God the promise of his grace and faithfulness without which he cannot exist. Is God on the throne? Has God forgotten? Is God's wrath too great? Will I ever see the blessing? These are the kinds of doubts that fly through the mind of God's people. But do we cling to God and do not let go of him at the moment of crisis? All of these things fill us with worry and anxiety, but how do we have that faith that is just described? And that faith that is just described, that brings us to the end of Psalm 89, the answer that we have, even with more clarity, with more glory, with more certainty than the psalmist has here, is to come to the true Son of David, Jesus Christ, and rest in Him. This psalm, in a way that can be described truly as marvelous, shows the heart of faith which grasps onto Jesus Christ and how we have, because of Christ, an incredible grounding upon which we may joyfully traverse the gap between promise and reality. The psalm shows that through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, God fulfills his promise to us to always have a king on the throne. And God promises to us immeasurable blessings, even in the midst of the tension, the joy of a reigning and ruling king, a heavenly king, changes the way that we, that we see and we process and we understand the circumstances of suffering, the dissonance, the gap between promise and reality. We must measure that gap with a measuring stick of Calvary. How do we do that? We go to the cross. There was a play that was written by a pastor in Berlin shortly after World War II. This play attempted to deal with the sorrow, the guilt, the vexation that came to a people forced to come face to face with evil, with desolation, with a broken country and economy left in the wake of their madman dictator. You can imagine, very difficult at that point for the German people. The play poses the question, who is responsible? Who is answerable for this terrible, terrible thing that has happened? Was it Hitler? Was he responsible? Was it the SS? Was it the supportive citizenry? Was it the ones who supposed, or who supposed this was wrong but did not stick their neck out? did not take any risks to oppose the one who was so evil. The players in this play walk among the audience so as to give a feel that this is a a, a pressing and a corporate question. Who's responsible? Maybe it's one of us. Maybe it's one of us who sits in the crowd. Ultimately, it was said within this drama that it must be God who was responsible. For if God is in control, if God gives the final okay, then it must rest ultimately on him. So in the play, there's this indictment and this declaration, God must be guilty. So then the players, they consider, well, how would you carry out a just punishment supposing God were guilty? Well, 
it is thought, we should make God feel all of the things that were felt in this terrible time. If God is responsible, then he should be made to know what it's like to be a man, even a Jewish man. If God were responsible and since so many were forced out of their homes, God should be made to feel displaced. He should be taken from the place where he is. Since so many had their dignity, their humanity ripped from them, he should be made to feel disgraced. And since so many had their earthly lives taken from them, God should be made to feel what it's like to die. So do you see what the pastor was doing? Millennia before the Holocaust, God had provided the answer to this tension between promise and reality when God the Son came to bear God's own wrath against sin, to go down into the depths of the curse of death, to emerge victorious, and to bestow upon his believing people the heavenly and eternal blessings that only come in him. If you believe this gap between promise and reality is too great, the great Edmund Clowney would say, measure it by Calvary. Look at how Christ is pictured for you in this psalm. You are full of wrath against your anointed, verse 38. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to bear God's wrath, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Verse 41, all who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made his enemies rejoice. Who can say that before Christ? There is one person who has suffered unjustly since the fall. Jesus Christ. Verse 44, you have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Who other than Christ can say this before him? Who says that before Jesus? God has provided for us an amazing, wonderful answer in the humble king who brought himself low to redeem us. God the son came, was himself displaced, disgraced, and made to die so that we might forever be with God in blessedness and eternal joy. He will take us to eternal joy, but since he has done what he has done, as we trust in him, joy enters our hearts now. That's the way that we live in the tension. That gap, we embrace Jesus Christ and understand that this answer which God has given to us brings comfort, brings blessing, brings life, brings joy, and brings peace. Isaac Watts, one of the most incredible authors, hymn writers in the history of the church, he would just consider the Psalms and write them in in faithful language, but kind of rearrange them and, and see what truths would come out. This is what he wrote when he was thinking about Psalm 89. Where is thy promise to the just? Are not thy servants turned to dust? But faith forbids these mournful sighs and sees the sleeping dust arise. What is he saying? He's saying you must look at the circumstances of your life through the lens of Jesus Christ, the son of David, who came to taste death, to bear wrath, 
to bear sin, who promises to come again, who promises for you a resurrection. That glorious hour, that dreadful day, wipes the reproach of saints away and clears the honor of thy word. Awake our souls and bless the Lord. One more. Has not thou promised to the Son and all his seed a heavenly crown? But flesh and sense indulge despair. What does that mean? When you look at the circumstances of your life in a fleshly manner, when you trust primarily your senses rather than your faith, you will despair. But when by faith you look to Christ, the perspective changes. So he goes on, forever blessed be the Lord that faith can read his holy word and find a resurrection there. You must throw all of your circumstances and understand them and look at them through the lens of Christ. You must measure the gap between promise and reality by this humble king. And you must give your heart to this king. What did we sing at the beginning of the service? The king of glory Come into my heart. Let my, let my heart open wide to this king. Give your heart to him. Trust in him. And rejoice in what God has provided for us with the true son of David.